podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Daniel Norcross. And I'm Rory Dollard. And between us, we are England Cricket on 99.94. We'll be every week looking at the ups, the downs, the runners, the riders, the news and the views on all things English cricket. And believe you me, there are plenty of ups and downs. Join us, England Cricket on 99.94. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. In this episode of Red Inca, we look at one of my favourite spells of bowling of all time. It's about Sean Tate. Aaron Lehman, Jason Gillespie, and Ryan Harris, and Brad Haddon. It's mostly about Sean Tate and a little bit about Charlie Sheen, but mostly about Sean Tate bowling in a little scene domestic final many years ago. If you're aware of what the commode story is from the movie Reservoir Dogs, then in a way, this is my version. And if you don't know what that is, essentially the commode story was given to one of the characters who was an undercover cop where they needed a story that sort of showed that they were a criminal that was worthy of other criminals' attention. And this is the story that I would tell for years in that same sort of situation. When I first moved to the UK and I was trying to make it as a professional cricket writer, If I was in a pub long enough with a bunch of people in cricket, eventually I would start to tell the story of this Sean Tate spell. The game was the ING Cup Final back in February 26, 2006. It was a competition that sort of was rebranded when I was quite young. And so I think for a lot of people of roughly my age, it was quite a big deal, the ING Cup. But originally it was the Mercantile Mutual. The Victorians wore shorts and they even had a song. The song went along the lines of, it's state versus state for the one day crown. Got to be there when the boys hit town. There's no love lost. The feeling's mutual in the Mercantile Mutual Cup. It's hard not to be romantic about a sporting event with such a great song. But this Sunday morning in February of 2006 in Adelaide, when South Australia were hosting New South Wales, it was at the end of the Australian summer, and it was also really early in the morning at Adelaide Oval. It was 9.30am, but actually it was 8.30 as daylight savings had just started. Because it was so early, when New South Wales won the toss, they sent South Australia in. Greg Blewett was out second ball to Dougie Bollinger. The best of South Australia kind of followed not long after that. Darren Lehman and Callan Ferguson among them. Only Mark Crosgrove's incredible broad bat keeps him in it. At this stage, Mark Crosgrove really did look like the best young player in Australia when he was in this kind of form. But no one around him actually looked like making runs on this particular day. And it wasn't the only time I ever saw Mark Cosgrove look like the only batter who could make runs on a dodgy pitch. But South Australia struggled so much, they changed their batting order. And by that, I mean they actually brought in their super sub, Ken Skews. He replaced his flatmate, Dan Cullen, who, as a bowler, will play this game, but not bat or ball because of that decision. Skews comes in as a super sub. If you don't remember, that was someone that could replace a player midway through a game, but they couldn't replace them if they'd already batted or if they'd already bowled their full allocation of overs. So Skews was in the side as an emergency if they needed extra batting. So he came in at number seven and he made a duck. 
meaning that South Australia actually wasted their chance of making more runs. South Australia make 154, and it's so early that New South Wales actually bat before the lunch break. Ah, those kinds of games. It's here where I need to break and tell you about Ricky Vaughan, who was also known as the Wild Thing, and he was a pitcher for the Cleveland Indians. Of course, if you know anything about your popular culture, you'll know that this was not a real sporting icon. But a movie called Major League, Ricky Vaughan Wild Thing was played by Charlie Sheen. I bring all this up, of course, because that was Sean Tate's nickname. And he is the player that we're talking about today. And it's Phil Jakes, of course, who was the first to face him. Phil Jakes at that point had a list A average of 48. And his scores in that competition alone were 29, 42, 100, 152 not out, 158 not out, 2, 37, 138 and 4. It's the best season he ever had in list A cricket. He was absolutely smoking everyone and it got him selected in the Australian ODI side. He gets off the mark against Tate by pushing the ball into the offside and there's a fielding error. And the next two balls from Tate are wide. One barely hits the pitch. I mean, it's important for you to know that I would say that this is a worse ball than the Steve Harmson first ball of the Ashes. At the other end is Craig Simmons. He's an interesting cricketer, Simmons. He was an under-19 Australian cricketer who basically got lost in the club cricket game for a long time until out of nowhere the Perth Scorchers brought him back when he was 31 and he played in a game against the Adelaide Strikers where he made 100 from 39 balls. Kane Richardson and Sean Tate was in that attack. A few weeks later, he would make another 100 against Josh Hazelwood, Mitchell Stark and Brett Lee. It is safe to say that Craig Simmons did not mind taking on very fast bowlers, except in this case... He doesn't even seem to see the ball that Sean Tate clean bowls him on. And when we talk about Sean Tate, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One is that he's not like Brett Lee. He didn't come out of the academy with a perfect action or anything else. Sean Tate's more like the sort of cricketers that Australia produces a lot, but not that many of them end up playing for the national team. But I'll tell you a story of someone else. When I was growing up in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, I had a friend at school who would always talk about this bowler who played at his club who bowled, well, according to him, 100 miles an hour. And we all went, yeah, of course, because everyone always has that story. And if you ever played club cricket, lots of people in Australia will turn up on time and, you know, they've got their basic whites on. And then there's always one guy who turns up in, you know, some hossed up ute or something with Guns N' Roses or ACDC blaring out of his car. He's got mismatched trousers and shirt. And then you go out to face him and you just have a quick look at where the slips and the keeper are and you suddenly think to yourself, there's no way he can be that quick. And of course, the first ball is. Well, that's kind of what Sean Tate was. And that story I told you before of that random club player, that was Mick Lewis, who also definitely bowled well over 90 miles an hour and would go on to play for Australia. Those sort of people exist. Sean Tate was just sort of the perfect version of that who went on to play cricket for his country. He didn't really look like a normal Australian cricketer. I remember he was in a calendar one year when they used to have the calendars that the Australian players used to post topless in. Sean Tate just didn't look like a cricketer when he was topless, or either that or it was one of the worst photos that had ever been made. But by this point, New South Wales knew more than enough about him. And so to prepare for this particular game, they put it on a bowling machine at 100 miles an hour. It was Corey Richards who told me that. And he was batting at three, but he was actually supposed to be batting at five. And then he was promoted to number four. But he got so pumped up that when they told him that he was promoted, he actually just went out one spot early because he knew that his job was to take on Tate. And he was completely buzzing when he got out there. Almost in a daze was the way he explained it to me. And then when he got out to the middle, Phil Jake stopped him and looked deep into his eyes and said, this is quick. 
And if Jake's didn't take Richards out of his weird trance, then Tate's short ball certainly did. He was all over the place and there was other wides, but when he got it online, you could see Richards suddenly realise what was going on. The third over was when Jake spooned up a fairly safe ball, followed by two more wides that he survives, and then the players go off for the lunch break. For those who don't know, Tate's arrival in professional cricket, well, he had played for a while, but I think the real big bang moment was when he took eight wickets in a list A game against a fully stocked Tasmanian team. In fact, it was eight wickets, nine wides and four no balls. Everyone knew about Tate from an early age because there had been a whisper about this teenager who should have won a fastest bowling in Australia competition, but wasn't allowed to do it because he was underage and the uh, competition, I think you got a lifetime supply of beer or a year's supply of beer, whatever it was. So the rumours had been around for a long time, but when he took that eight wicket haul against Tasmania, it wasn't just the odd little spell or the odd ball. People realised what he could do. Hilariously, in this particular game, after the break, you would have thought that he'd already bothered the New South Wales players enough so they would start up with Tate. Lehman actually brought himself on, which if you don't remember Darren Lehman's bowling, he bowled very slow, left arm, orthodox, almost undercutters, nude nuts, doorknobs. There was almost nothing on it. He was widely, don't get me wrong, and he bowled a lot. It's kind of the opposite of Sean Tate. Eventually, of course, Darren Lehman being the captain would bring Tate back on. And New South Wales was 65 for one, meaning that they needed well less than 100 with 35 overs left at this point. And the other important thing is that This game started really early on and the New South Wales bowlers took full stock of that wicket and made the ball move around and it was quite hard and quite spicy early on. After lunch, that was pretty much completely gone and the wicket was now just a flat Adelaide pitch and it's not that Adelaide can't be quick and we remember some of the things that Mitchell Johnson has done there, but we didn't completely believe that this was the kind of wicket that bothered people in the way that, say, the Wacker did. That didn't seem to be the case, of course, when Tate dismissed Richards, who was still trying to attack him really hard, and he swung at one, but only found slip. Next in was Matthew Phelps, who originally was supposed to be batting at number three until Richards walked out before him. He barely saw his first ball. I swear his bat actually came through after he'd already been given out LBW by Simon Torfel. And it's Brad Haddon who comes out to face the hat-trick ball. Of course, Tate delivers a wide down the leg side. A couple of balls later, Haddon gets off strike, and now Jax is facing up, and he gets a brute of a back-of-a-length ball and gloves it, and he gives his third wicket to Tate. Of course, to finish that over, Tate still finishes with a wide. Now out batting with Brad Haddon is Dominic Thornley, who's now a player agent, in case you needed to know. But he was a very good sort of second-tier New South Wales player, but, you know, being second-tier in New South Wales is still pretty good. Against Tate... Well, the balls were just either too fast or too wide for Thornley to hit. And at one stage, Tate walks over to Jason Gillespie and says, I can't bowl anymore. Gillespie reminds him that he took three wickets in the previous over. And yes, Jason Gillespie is in that game. And that's the first time we've mentioned him, which is remarkable enough. But there's an even more fun fact about South Australian fast bowlers in that game. At one stage, Tate is down on the boundary having a drink. And the person who has given him that is Ryan Harris. It's incredible how he just relegated everyone else to just unimportant figures. At the end of that over, Thornley walks down to Haddon and he says, that last ball I faced just hit the bat. I didn't see it. But Tate is taken off. South Australia had done some studies at the time and they'd worked out that for proper fast bowling, the best thing you could do was bowling them in micro spells. 
I'm not sure this quite counts as a micro spell because Tate bowled two overs in that spell, but he delivered 18 balls in them and he looked absolutely spent. Tate sixth is when New South Wales need 52 runs. This stage he's gone for 30 runs and 11 of those are wides. Those at the ground think he looked even quicker as the pitch had dried up. Both players are clearly desperate to get off strike. When Thornley looked back, he noticed that the slips were standing on the 30-yard circle, which is something that does happen at the Wacker. But again, it's not really what you expect to see when you're at Adelaide Oval. That's exactly where Thornley is caught, though, right on that 30-yard circle from another short ball. It should be pointed out, though, by now, Tate really does seem to be slowing down. Without getting into his entire medical history, he's been in a constant fight against his own mismatch to action and incredible athleticism. Some of the players I talked to for this piece, and I've talked to over the years when it comes to Tate, have said that it's almost like the ball twisted around from behind his back, I suppose a little bit like a less traditional version of Wakar Yunus. And it's probably that mismatched action where he wasn't side on and he wasn't front on that really led to him having so many problems with his body. And he also would have gone for a lot more runs in this particular game if it wasn't for his wicketkeeper, Graham Manu, who once played a test match, who had saved a bunch of balls that could have gone down wide. For, if it would have been a temporary wicketkeeper or a part-time wicketkeeper, I think Tate's figures would have been a lot worse. But it's also Manu who comes up a little bit closer when he sees that Tate is slowing down. And with some of those wides, it should be pointed out, and I never quite got to the bottom of who this was, but there was a New South Wales batter who I was told by other New South Wales players asked the umpires if they could stop calling wides at one stage. And I was like, oh, as a joke. And they were like, I don't think it was a joke. (laughs) In the eighth over, Brad Haddon is facing Sean Tate again, and he survives the over, but he does get hit along the way. And it seems like at this point, the plan is very clear, that the top batter will just face as much as possible. And hopefully then, as he slows down and gets tired, there'll only be another wicket or so. Unfortunately, though, Haddon runs himself out. And now South Australia are four wickets away from a huge win. And Jason Crazier comes in as a super sub batter ahead of someone else who would go on to play test cricket and as a batter. When he was on the balcony, Jason Crazier was thinking to himself that one of these balls could actually take your face off. Luckily for him, that's not what happened. He was a spinner who could bat a little bit and certainly made some runs early in his career. He's most famous, of course, for the 12 wickets he took in a test match against India, which I suppose probably needs its own podcast on its own for how crazy that particular game was from him. But in this case, he goes up the order, he gets hit on the gloves, the ball goes up in the air, and Graham Manu takes the catch. Finally, New South Wales are out of batters or even all-rounders like Crazier who can hold the bat. And so they send in their teenage under-19 captain, Moses Enriquez. He is almost caught first ball, and second up, he plays a shot that basically has already hit Manu's gloves before Enriquez has even seen it. The interesting thing about this entire spell was that there are times when Tate is just kind of emotionally all over the place. He doesn't look that interested early on. Other times he looks a little bit more cold-blooded, he gets frustrated at the wides, of course, and he doesn't even celebrate all the wickets straight away. But by the last over, none of that seems to be the case anymore. New South Wales now need 12 to win, and Tate has six legal balls left. Aaron O'Brien and Moses Enriquez steal a couple of early over runs and also survive a fairly loud LBW shout. The crowd is now 
absolutely chanting Tate's name. And even the South Australian players noticed that Tate has changed his physicality. Finally, he's completely up for this. And as the crowd of 9,000 people get fully behind him, he comes in and delivers an absolutely beautiful reverse swing Yorker that almost knocks Henriquez over. And all 9,000 people at the ground appeal at once. Sadly, it's probably going down leg. And then the last ball of his over, he delivers a full toss. His spell is over. And when it finishes, the New South Wales team get together and clap in acknowledgement. He has finished with 10 overs, five spells, no maidens, 41 runs, six wickets, and 14 wines. 12.2 overs of pure Sean Tate. South Australia do actually find a couple of other wickets late. And Darren Lehman comes on to bowl the 41st over with Stuart McGill on strike. The scores are level. It's nine wickets down when McGill gets a run to win the final. He doesn't celebrate. He actually goes and looks for Tate straight away. It's kind of a bad way to finish it all. Stuart McGill honours him, as does New South Wales, and but it's not a big game. It was, as I said, starting very early, so most people probably didn't even know there was a game on. It was before T20, so domestic white ball cricket wasn't exactly the flavour of everyone's month. It was at the end of the season, and of course, Tate's team didn't win. If you watch that game, you can tell why I'm still talking about it all these years later. I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone bowl faster than I saw on the TV that day. It was just absolute pure mayhem from his first ball all the way through to the end. And when you talk to those players, the stories that they tell you about what it was like going out there is just incredible. And That was probably near the peak of what we saw of Sean Tate, certainly by pace bowling standards. In 2008, he was brought back to play against India in a test match at the Wacker. They used a slower pitch and Sean Tate looked terrible. He played at times before that in Ashes tests and again, wasn't quite at his best. It seems like there was only a few times at the international level we ever saw the Sean Tate that destroyed Tasmania and and New South Wales in that particular game. And when his body was almost completely gone, he managed to get it ready for one particular game. It was a T20 at the MCG. And Australia were playing Pakistan, and they made 129. And after he delivered his first ball, Ian Healy reacted to it by saying, the wild thing is in. He was bowling to Imran Farhat, and there was a shot where Imran Farhat plays a cricket shot. But it's a little bit like watching a computer game where you press the buttons too late, and the ball is already through you. They then show the pace of the ball on the screen at the MCG, 160.7 kilometres per hour. The MCG just erupts. On commentary, James Brayshaw, who's excited at the best of times, but James Brayshaw once took Sean Tate onto a Australian rules footy show to bowl at a footy legend to show him what sort of courage you needed before pretty much anyone knew who Sean Tate was as well. James Brayshaw is a South Australian boy. James Brayshaw was excited if nothing happened, but now his mind was absolutely going. And he says on commentary, that is 100 miles per hour. A cricket ball does not get bowled faster than that. And he's wrong on both points. It's actually 99.854 miles per hour. And balls have been bowled faster. In fact, Sean Tate bowled a faster ball at Lords, where he bowled at 100.1 miles per hour. But it's still a huge moment because this is the MCG and it's at home and the crowd's completely behind him. And when Sean Tate gets down to the boundary and it's the old Bay 13, 
right? The Merv Hughes Bay 13, the drunken pit of MCG cricket, where they used to throw golf balls at the English players and all that sort of stuff. They rise in one to give him a drunken standing ovation. And these people think they have seen the fastest ball they will ever see, but they don't even know that they're probably still not seeing the wild thing at his peak. They didn't have a speed gun there in that 2006 game. And if they did, I think, and I have no science to back this up, but I personally believe he was quicker that day than he was at the MCG or that time at Lords when he went over 100 miles an hour. I talked to so many players about this game because it wasn't a big game. So when I had to find the information about it, there wasn't a lot of reports written about it or anything else. It just wasn't that big. Unless you watched it live on Channel 9 or happened to be at the Adelaide Oval, it probably wouldn't stick with you at all. Even Tate's figures... They look good, but they don't tell the story that I've just told you, right? It was an incredible moment in cricket. And so when I went back and I talked to the South Australian players and the New South Wales players, they just talked about it like it was seeing a ghost. They couldn't believe the pace, the fury, the mayhem, all of it, and how Tate was playing a different game to everyone else on that field, despite the fact that there was great New South Wales players on that field. There was Jason Gillespie on that field. You know, there was Darren Lehman. There was Greg Bluett. This was a high-quality domestic game of cricket. And Sean Tate was all anyone wanted to talk about. And any time I brought this up with someone involved, they just gushed over what it was like to either be there or face him. And I'm going to leave the last word to Phil Jokes. Now, I've talked him up a little bit already. I talked about his list A average and how he went to play one-day cricket for Australia. Remember, he had a really good test record as well. And I think had he not injured his back, he would have gone on to have a fantastic late career with Australia. He was a top, top level player and he obviously played all around the world. Also, Jakes was the former teammate of Brett Lee. He knew pace. He grew up with Brett Lee. He was a similar age to him and would have faced him a lot in his life. This is what Phil Jakes said to me about Sean Tay. That was definitely the quickest spell of bowling I faced. I faced Shoah Bakhtar and Dale Stane, but he was just a different level. The pace was different gravy. So that was Jake's. And if I was going to say anything about Sean Tate and that spell, I would just say that it was wild thing in real life. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. Also, support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by The Red Crickets.